1982, writer J.M. DeMatt... <laughs> okay, hold on. DeMattis <laughs> is not an easy name to it say. It is not. And I said DeMattney because uh, he was a football coach back when I was in high school. Okay. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. With Marvel and DC, both officially celebrating Pride Month, we thought it would be worth examining how we got here. Obviously, LGBT representation in comics is wide, varied, problematic, and also far more prominent in comic books released outside of the big two. Web comics, indie projects, and zines not having to go through strict editorial rules laid up by Disney and Warner Brothers have always had a little more leeway to be, well, gay. That history is rich and important in its own right, and we'll cover that in its own episode. But today, we thought we'd look at DC and Marvel and their own journeys toward LGBT acceptance and how, in many ways, we're still working towards it. As we talked about in Seduction of the Innocent, people were always seeing gayness in comics, whether it was intentional or not. It is important to acknowledge here some important vocabulary up front. On the one hand, we have gay coding. Gay coding is when a character is meant to be read as gay, even when they can't explicitly say that's the case. Coding is far from unique to LGBT characters, but these days we usually think of it as such. A famous non-LGBT coding example would be Ben Grimm, aka The Thing from the Fantastic Four, who, despite his creator Jack Kirby using him on his Hanukkah cards, wasn't canonically Jewish until 2002. Then we have gay subtext, which is a lot more your mileage may vary. While Brooke or me might look at a panel of Black Canary and Oracle staring soulfully into each other's eyes while holding each other tightly as lesbian subtext. And we'd be right. Other people might read it as platonic or sisterly. Subtext is where we get Frederick Wertham's Batman is gay and in a relationship with his ward. Subtext can be accidental or intentional. It can be pervasive or a one-off. Well, a character who is gay-coded will usually have it built into the foundations of their character or at least a certain writer or artist interpretation of the character, subtext can come and go as it pleases. And then there's just plain old canon. Characters who kiss other girls, call themselves by those labels, and, depending on the era, may or may not be microaggressed by Batman. Thanks, Chuck Dixon. Identifying intentional coding in early comics is hard. For a variety of reasons. Not a lot of people were exactly lining up to self-identify at the time, and it seems that a lot of early stuff was accidental subtext or just Wortham's insisting on reading anything featuring affection and camaraderie as two people who weren't biologically related as perverse and deviant. Even writers or artists that we now know who were gay, like Patricia Smith, she wrote The Price of Salt, the book which would become the inspiration for the movie Carol, Harold, didn't seem to have much in the way of intentional subtext or coding in her work for Fawcett and Standard Comics. Also, she left the industry as soon as her book started selling. 
the Comics Code Authority killed a lot of subtext in comics. Most sidekicks were kicked to the curb, gender roles were enforced, and infamously, in the case of Batman and Robin, who were way too popular to break up, they bearded them. With Catwoman gone because she was too immoral and a loose woman, Batman needed a love interest, and so did Robin. So the obvious solution was to DC to create Batwoman and Batgirl, better known as Kathy and Betty Kane. The two characters were very, very feminine, earnest, and followed their gender rules. Kathy Kane had a bat purse instead of a utility belt. That sort of thing. Both of them were swept up in a general soft reboot of Batman and exited the series along with Ace the Bat-Hound and Batmite as the Silver Age began to make room for the Bronze Age. Afterwards, Barbara Gordon would appear on the stage and generally be far more popular and better received than Betty or Kathy were. Although Kathy remained beloved by plenty of people who requested appearances of her so often that she often guest starred in a Batgirl story and then was killed off. And then Betty got to join a Teen Titans spinoff team for four whole issues. Yikes. And then Crisis on Infinite Earths happened. I'm not looking forward to that episode. Your department, not mine. Bet- Betty, renamed as Bet, showed up again pretty soon after the crisis, but Kathy Kane remained relegated to a footnote until she was reinvented as lesbian icon Kate Kane in 2006 during the series 52. What a journey from her being Bruce's beard to Bruce being her skirt. And then, as of the new 52, DC realized it was kind of weird to have two major wealthy families in Gotham with the same last name, and they retconned them together, which made Bruce Wayne and Kathy Kane cousins. Whoops. Do you think DC's figured out yet that in this process they've accidentally made Bruce Wayne Jewish? Odds are, probably not. Grant Morrison did bring Kathy Kane back for some reason. After Kate Kane was already established in a series, they co-wrote and Kathy even made it past the new 52 reboot where she was retconned as being an entirely different character again in Grayson but generally Kate Kane is accepted as being the heir to that particular throne of bearding iconic honestly over in Marvel Jim Shooter the editor at the time infamously had the edict of no gays in the Marvel universe but there were some ways around the edict in 1982, writer J.M. DeMattis managed to write Captain America number 270, where Steve un- reunites with his childhood best friend, Arnie Roth, and helps him rescue his intimate friend, Michael Bick, in an adventure that specifically parallels Steve's relationship with his current girlfriend. Steve would later state that Arnie and Michael's relationship was natural and real, pushing back against the homophobic Baron Zemo. It mostly seems like he got away with it by not using the words, even if everything else was in place. Meanwhile, over in DC, we arrive at the character who is generally agreed to be the first intentional gay superhero, Extraño. Extraño first appeared in 1988 as an effeminate Peruvian man whose superhero name literally means strange. He was a flamboyant, colorful camp as camp could be, and he talked about himself in the third person. He was also caught up in a massive AIDS metaphor with the rest of his team, so great. LGBT characters, mostly gay men, began to appear in the background of comics in the form of political protests around HIV and AIDS. Also, 
homophobic characters would start to accuse certain characters of being gay, most infamously Rorsarch from Watchmen. We also had a few minor characters like Pied Piper from Flash being revealed as gay men. The character most people think of when they first think of gay superhero, however, is without a doubt North Star. North Star debuted in 1979, and apparently his creator, John Byrne, conceived him as gay from the beginning, although he didn't come out, mostly due to Jim Shooter, until 1992. And then later, he got to finally kiss his boyfriend in 2011. Wow, that's a a gap. Despite the beginning of characters appearing, it's worth noting that we're mainly dealing with gay men who are mostly white. LGBT characters mostly continue to be supporting characters, background characters, or villains, even as they started to pick up in numbers throughout the 90s and early 2000s. DC and Marvel alike both had more LGBT characters of varying levels of good portrayals and their off-brand imprints and side stories. DC had Vertigo and Wildstorm, where we had characters like John Constantine and Apollo and Midnighter. That's not to say that there weren't any LGBT heroes in the mainstream at the time. Todd Rice, a.k.a. Obsidian, came out in 1996. He would begin dating a man and would eventually adopt a daughter with him in the 2004 series Manhunter. At Marvel, meanwhile, LGBT stories reportedly had to carry an adults-only label until the early 2000s. Around the same time, Marvel was beginning to create their first teen queer characters. Both Brian Vaughn's Runaways launched in 2003, and Alan Heinberg's Young Avengers launched two years later in 2005. Both of these series would go on to have famously LGBT characters. Runaways with lesbian Carolina Dean, and later gender-fluid Zavin and bisexual Nico Minoro, and Young Avengers with Billy Kaplan and his boyfriend, later fiancé, and now husband, Teddy Altman. And the gradual reveal over the past 16 years that pretty much all of Young Avengers is some flavor of queer. I think Kate Bishop is still straight. God damn it. Over at DC, they also began to have LGBT main characters. Renee Montoya was the main protagonist of 2003's Gotham Central. Greg Rucka, who wrote Gotham Central as well as Wonder Woman at the time, began laying the groundwork for making Wonder Woman herself bisexual in 2003. And Kate Kane made her magnificent lesbian debut in 2006. Over at Marvel, though, they were about to make one of those choices that goes to show that even the best of intention attempts to create representation can be less than great if it's done without an understanding of homophobic tropes and stereotypes. The character Freedom Ring, a.k.a. Curtis Doyle, was introduced in 2006 by Robert Kirkman, writer we discussed before, and was known as being gay from the start. After a blaze of glory debut and several promotions and crossovers, he was killed. Graphically. I can't slam my head against my desk because my microphone is in the way. But no, that I want to. Bury Your Gaze is an infamous trope, previously mandated by censorship authorities such as the Hayes Code in Hollywood. That 
being gay meant that you would die is a staple of fiction and it's an unfortunate reality for many parts of the lgbt community even to this day particularly of transgender women of color a gay man dying violently isn't subversive or breaking stereotypes it is the stereotype this is especially notable because of how few gay characters there are in comics It's true that gay people die, that gay people are subject to violence, that gay people can have toxic relationships or even be bad people. But when there are so few LGBT characters, it sends a not great message when those are the only characters or representation that we get. It's like how many LGBT characters are villains. On the one hand, yes, good. I'm very into Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn's be gay, do crimes, be polyamorous aesthetic. But on the other hand... For what it's worth, Robert Kirkman, to his credit, did seem to understand that the backlash was understandable and fair. In a statement on an Image Comics message board... Wait, that's where you found this? God bless the Wayback Machine. Kirkman explained that he had been trying to combine two character concepts. That of a gay man who had a personality outside of being gay, and an... inexperienced hero who got in over their head it's one of those stories that just goes to show how people don't really see trends until they're pointed out to them as we approach the 2010s more and more characters join the ranks of the pride parade north star married his partner in 2012 and the wildstorm characters joined the official dcu bringing more and more queer characters into the mainstream comics but over at dc a controversy was waiting in the wings. After the New 52, for some reason that has never really made sense, Editor-in-Chief Dan DiDio instituted a no-marriage rule, which was bad, but it really blew up in their face after Kate Kane, Batwoman, proposed to her partner, Maggie Sawyer, and they couldn't do the wedding. Genius, really. The New 52 had its highlights Um, one of my personal favorite coming out stories came from the earth 2 imprint where it was revealed that green lantern alan scott was gay like his son before him a fact which has officially crossed over into the mainstream canon with newest continuity relaunch infinite frontier just this year while the start of the new 52 offered a queer green lantern in exchange for telling the story of his gay son 2021 said why not both marvel is also expanding more and more new lgbt characters iceman an original x-men character was well he was informed he was gay by a telepath without his consent in 2015 it really goes to show that straight writers don't always understand what kind of storylines people actually go to see outing someone without their consent is not progressive or interesting it's one that happens in real life sure but that's a bad thing that shouldn't happen renee montoya's outing in 2003 was portrayed as horrific life-changing a tragedy bobby's outing in 2015 was treated as a joke Thankfully, Cinegrace, an openly gay writer, was given two runs of an Iceman solo, better to build off of that idea. 
Representation in comics is still halting at best. Fan backlash to old characters being outed often means that they make new characters to be LGBT instead. And then they bank on the hype of a new gay character to make these characters work rather than giving them good writers or interesting storylines. And then if those characters don't sell, they use that to justify a lack of LGBT characters. This pretty infamously happened with the America Chavez solo series, which was canceled due to a lack of pre-orders before it even made it to market. And a lot of queer characters are still one-offs, villains, or minor background characters. And notably, even when lesbian, gay, and bisexual characters make it into adaptations, their sexuality is usually the first thing to go. The live-action TV shows have been somewhat better than the movies or cartoons, but queerness is still considered taboo, especially on large screens, with Disney and Warner Brothers declining to include scenes exploring those aspects of the characters. There was a lot of lack of understanding as even well-meaning creators tried to recreate or explore the LGBT experiences and stories. As author and comic critic Glenn Weldon noted in a series of tweets about Sandman's then-progressive, now infamous storyline about a transgender character, representation is never the ultimate goal. It's step one. Because first, we're the villains the hero defeats. Then we're the victims the hero saves. Then we're the cardboard character who lends the hero support. And then, eventually, we're the hero. Even writers and artists who are LGBT themselves can struggle to recreate the struggles of people who don't exactly overlap their own experience. Plenty of gay men don't write women well, period, let alone lesbians. And white cisgender gays don't necessarily understand or relate to the experience of non-white queer folks or our transgender siblings. As two gay women, we find that our experience is not reflected not only in, in comics, but in fandom and in our experiences with meeting other comic fans. And it can be alienating and lonely. Which is why podcasts like this are hopefully coming into existence, where we can share that perspective and lend some uh, amplitude to other voices and experiences. Yeah, and so getting on to the rec section, as mentioned earlier in the show, really DC and Marvel don't have as much in the way of queer comics or queer characters. So it was without a single ounce of shame that I went to one of my favorite web comics for a rec instead. Leaf and Thorn by Aaron Patah is a self-described sparkly queer cross-cultural fantasy comedy telling the story of a knight Thorn and his slow but delightful courtship of indentured servant gardener Leaf. The story is clever with large-scale world-building, delightful storylines, and it's unabashedly, unapologetically queer in every single flavor. They've got variants on gender. They've got variants on sexuality. They have discussions about all of these different things. And it's just sometimes you want to live in a world that is no grounded in reality at all, and it is pure, unabashed queer escapism. While the big two still have quite a way to go to catch up with the indie scene, queer comics media have been booming in recent years. There are lots of examples to list, but one international comic near and dear to my heart is My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness by Kabi Nagata. 
This autobiographical comic started out as an intimate graphical journal online and struck such a chord with international audiences that it became a uniting point with adult queer women around the world. It's very honest, very explicit, and details the story of finding love, acceptance, and awkwardness, all spinning out from hiring an online female escort. I highly recommend. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or a rating, or tell a friend to to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about Steph and my impressive beards, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin McAlloyd for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. Who's my favorite beard? Who's my beard?